Thank you for joining us in a dialogue for the soul. Journey Church is a community and movement, a fellowship and discovery. Our desire is to dwell in soul environments while telling the love story of Jesus. To find out more about our faith community, please visit journeyfranklin.com. Funny, I got this phone call yesterday from Jamie. We don't talk very often, but he called and explained what had been going on. He says, you know, I've been, we've been teaching through the book of Acts, talking about Paul's missionary journeys, describing the cities that he visited. And then as we get to each city, we go through the letters that he wrote back to the church in that city after he'd left. And we're in the book of Corinthians now, and I've warned him. Uh, our folks that uh, these would be a good these next couple Sundays be good maybe to leave the young kids uh, out of the service because we're going to be talking about sex they're all primed going to talk to them about sex and he said he said uh, you know and he was he was barely at a whisper because uh, he was losing his voice he said I knew I had to talk about sex and so there was there was only one person I could think of. <laughs> And to me, that's the greatest irony, because I spent the first 20 years of my adult life and all of my years in vocational ministry making sure that whenever the subject of sex came up in church, I was the one person nobody thought of. (laughs) I had a a religious persona that I was very, very protective of. And uh, I didn't want anybody to suspect that... uh, Oh, certainly not that I, you know, had an obsessive interest in sex, that I'd been, you know, using pornography obsessively since I was a teenager, that that had taken me places that I never intended to go, um, that I was, uh, well, let's just say, unfaithful to my wife hundreds of times, I don't know, thousands of times doing all kinds of things that would get you kicked out of church and unable to stop. I, I was terrified that anybody might know that. Uh, so uh, to me, it's the greatest irony that now I talk about it all the time and am happy to. Uh, all right, so here's the story. I'm, I wasn't here last week, so I don't know what Jamie told you about Corinth. We're in the book of Corinthians. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, we'll probably reference 2 Corinthians while we're here. We have two letters. There may have been three that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We've got two of them. Uh, At the time that Paul visited the city of Corinth, the city in its present form was only about 100 years old. Now, it it had been an ancient city, uh, a center of pagan worship. Uh, But in the year 146 B.C., the Romans had destroyed it completely, leveled it, raised it, killed all the men, sold all the women and children into slavery. Now, the site of the city, its location was very, very strategic. It sat on an isthmus between the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. Um, So it was a natural commercial center. So Julius Caesar, seeing its importance... uh, revitalized the city, kind of reopened it, started it all over again, populated it, 
uh, in 46 B.C. with uh, freed slaves, including a few Judean Jewish slaves, but slaves from all over the empire. Now, this was a city that had two seaports, one on the Adriatic, one on the Aegean, only four miles apart. And they were uh, connected by an amazing highway, a superhighway that went right through town. Um, It was, and the city grew so fast that by the time Paul got there, not only was Corinth the capital of the province, it was five times bigger than Athens. It was the place to go to succeed. Almost everybody who lived in Corinth came from someplace else. They went there to make money, uh, you know, to find a job. There was all kinds of opportunity. And it was also a very open, what we would call a free and sexually permissive society. Now, that sexual business uh, went back to the early days of Corinth. I don't know if you guys saw in the newspaper... Uh, last week or the week before, arrests that were made in Phoenix and Sedona, Arizona, where the police came in and closed down um, something called the Divine Goddess Temple and charged them with prostitution. Uh, Thirty people at the Divine Goddess Temple, uh, people who are now appealing their arrest on the basis of religious freedom. Yeah, you went to the temple, and yeah, you paid some money to spend some time with a priest. Um, But at the divine goddess temple, sex was a holy and sacred thing, and you were engaged in worship with the priest. That's actually a very, very, very old idea. And uh, Corinth was famous for that kind of worship. Ancient Corinth, in one temple alone, there were a thousand temple prostitutes. In fact, in the Greek language, in ancient Greek, one of the words for fornication, uh, one of the slang words, street words, was Corinthiazomai. That's what you do in Corinth. Now, by the time Paul got there, we don't know how much genuine worship was going on or whether it was just a wink and a nod. Yeah, we go to the temple to worship, but it was a big deal. The city was filled with people engaged in the sex trades. There were lots of sailors from all around the world that kept him busy. It was not a big deal in Corinth. It just wasn't a big deal. Um, now, there were other things that went on at, at Temple. <laughs> um, not only was it, you know, a place for casual sex, commercial sex, it was also a place to get a good meal. Um, most of the temples had dining rooms, restaurants. It was that. Uh, and the food was ritually a portion of the meat was offered to the idol who was enshrined in that temple. Um, now, <clears throat> Paul was the unlikeliest of missionaries to the Gentile world. I think God just loves irony. So, you know, so when he's going to pick somebody to uh, declare the gospel to the entire world, he picks 
a guy who hates the entire world. Um, Paul, Paul saw growing up in a very legalistic, highly religious Jewish household, part of the strictest sects, just a uh, sect, just about the, uh, the, the strictest sect, say that ten times fast, strictest sect in Judaism, not quite Taliban, but certainly Wahhabi. Um, he was a Pharisee. And these were rule keepers, man. More than 650 rules, and they kept them. It was all about the thou shalt nots. To them, nothing was more important than purity, ritual purity. There were dietary laws, a zillion dietary laws. There were also strict laws about when men could interact with women. And even stricter laws about when believers could associate with unbelievers, which was pretty much never. In fact, growing up as a boy, there was a prayer that Saul, as he was known as young man, prayed every day. It's what every devout young Jewish boy prayed every day. The prayer went like this. Thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile. Thank you, God. That you did not make me a slave. Thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman. Um, the, the members of that sect, that it was more you know, that school of thought within Judaism, it was a very highly respected school of thought. They were deeply offended by Jesus. And they led the charge in having him executed. What infuriated them about Jesus was his blasphemous attitude toward the law, the way he just broke all the taboos. He broke the dietary laws. He broke the Sabbath laws. He associated with sinners and with Gentiles. His best friends were women, it seemed like. He did everything wrong. Um, and after Jesus was executed, Paul, Saul, was very, very zealous in trying to root out and exterminate anybody who had been infected by his teaching. So he was responsible for uh, arranging the arrest, the trial, and the execution of Christians. And it was actually on a mission to Damascus. He was, he'd become so famous in his hometown uh, he, was he was going now uh, national. He was on his way to Damascus with arrest warrants in his pocket, uh, ready to drag some other people into uh, court on capital charges when he was waylaid on the road by the risen Christ and his world was changed. And now by the time he gets to uh, Corinth, Paul understands grace. He says, it was, we sang it this morning, it's for freedom that Christ has made us free. He's given us something much higher and sweeter and more beautiful than the law. Um, he's given us his spirit, planted it within us. Um, he, he goes so far as to turn that old prayer upside down and declare that in Christ there is no, no longer 
We are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. You know, he gets a bad rap these days from people who don't know any better about his attitude toward women. They, they actually, they're actually people who think that he's somehow patriarchal, uh, that he has a low view of women. Uh, i got to tell you, speaking into the context of that world, um, you couldn't be more pro-woman than Paul was. Um, now he proclaims the gospel in Corinth he goes um, he lives there for a year and a half he does ministry the way he's become accustomed to doing ministry he goes into the uh, marketplace and he, he sets up shop he engages in commerce he has a skill he's a tent maker he uh, probably hires a few people it takes a few people to make a good tent he gets to know the other people in the marketplace. He makes friends. He makes an awful lot of friends among the Gentiles. He finds those Gentiles who have a spiritual yearning. And he begins to tell them about the Savior. And, uh, and he plants a church. He leaves. The church grows. It flourishes. But... Problems arise, questions arise, and he's called upon now from a distance. He's in Ephesus probably when he writes the book to the church in Corinth, uh, the first letter. They've got questions. Now, we can't cover them all. This is a big book. Um, But it's not surprising that among the issues, among the questions in Corinth, are issues around sex. And what I'd like to do today is is to look at the sexual piece, one part of the sexual piece, along with the uh, the food offered to idols piece. Now, here's what he says in chapter six. By the way, he doesn't go straight to sex. He's not sexually obsessed. There's all kinds. If there's anything, if what's most uppermost on his mind and what concerns him most is what he deals with first then it's instructive that the first thing he deals with is the division among them. The fact that they're breaking into to competing groups. Uh, it's becoming a matter of uh, personality. Uh, people elevating one personality over another. That's really what bothers him the most. But he finally gets around to the subject of sex in chapter 7. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 6. I want to pick it up. In verse 12, where um, he references a quotation, kind of an aphorism, an axiom in the church. Everything is permissible for me. Now, that's true. For Christians, everything is permissible. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial, he says. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is now. The body is not meant 
for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us up also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Um, you know, I grew up in a very strict uh, Christian home. We were Wahhabi, definitely. Um, and we didn't talk about sex in the church that I grew up in, except in veiled and very condemnatory language. We didn't talk about it at home either. I didn't have the talk with my dad. <laughs> Um, And to me, that sent a very, very powerful message. The message I received was, sex is so shameful that we can't even talk about it. The Bible, by the way, is just not at all prudish about that. The Bible talks about sex right from the get-go. Chapter 1, describing paradise before the fall. And, and, and make, the Bible makes a big deal out of, you know, there in this paradise, um, Adam and Eve are together and they are naked and they are not ashamed. Now, as a kid, um, when the physical changes began to take place in my body that I was not alerted would happen, uh, those changes, when the chemicals began to surged throughout my brain and suddenly I developed interests I'd never had before and uh, questions for which nobody was giving me answers Uh, I I did any research that I could find I wanted to find out about sex and and of course one of the places I went with was the Bible which is which scared me to death because I found out in in Genesis you know I didn't know where babies came from but there in Genesis it said Adam knew Eve and she, you know, and she brought forth Cain. Um, that was frightening. Because <laughs> I, like, I knew lots of girls. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, do you know what the Hebrew word is for the one that's translated there? No. Has, has Jamie talked to you about this? 
the Hebrew word, and this is a little ironic because it shows how we have so debased and trivialized sex in today's culture. We've even debased and trivialized this word. You know what the word is? Yada. In Hebrew, it's pronounced yada. To know. To know intimately. I don't know how painful your adolescence was. Mine was painful emotionally for a lot of reasons. My mom died when I was nine, and there was a big vacuum there. And then my dad remarried somebody who was deeply wounded. And, and so where there had been emotional kind of neglect, now there became abuse and physical abuse. And, and I was small for my age, and I was, uh, you know... Not what every girl dreamed of is Mr. You know, Mr. Dreamy. Um, the dominant emotion that comes to my mind when I think about adolescence, especially high school, you know what I remember most vividly is I remember the loneliness. I was so lonely. Especially when my friends started, you know, flirting and going out with each other, and that whole drama began, and it was girlfriends and boyfriends, and it was forever before I had a girlfriend. And I remember thinking, will anybody ever want me? Now, I knew what they wanted in church, and I was very, very good at delivering that. I was a star in church. Uh, I, I, I knew the lines. I was a poster boy. I was the, the golden child of our non-denominational denomination, destined for greatness. I was going to be a preacher, which unfortunately, you know, meant that I was going to be neither male nor female, some kind of strange third gender that was completely safe because, you know, to be in the ministry meant that, yeah, I don't know, at least the way we defined it. Um, I remember that loneliness, and I remember when the miracle happened, when I met my wife. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I fell for her like a ton of bricks from the first time I saw her. And the craziest, I mean, wildest, most insane thing was she, she fell for me, too. I couldn't believe it. I mean, uh, I questioned anybody who knew her. I mean, I was too afraid of rejection to just kind of come out and declare what I felt for her right away. You know, I had to be pretty well assured that my feelings were going to be reciprocated. And people looked at me and said, yeah, she really does like you. And then, you know, true, what she first liked was my religious persona. But, but there was also something deeper, and I knew it from the moment I met her. It's like there was this deeper connection. And even when she saw other parts of me that didn't fit with a religious persona, she still cared about me. 
And, and at that point, it's like the ego boundaries collapsed. Loneliness went out the window. I had found my cosmic twin. We merged. It was I'd, We could finish each other's sentences. Have you had that experience? That wonderful falling in love, infatuation, uh, experience this period of temporary insanity that God gives us to induce us to make impossible lifelong promises to each other. Um, I thought I loved her. Really, I thought I had found somebody just like me. And it was easy for me to love somebody just like me. Hmm? Uh, you know, later on, when the fog lifted, and I realized that I had married somebody not just of another gender, but at times it seemed a different species. Uh, love became a bigger job. But how intoxicating to be uh, known, yada, known. We now understand, by the way, a whole lot more than we did even just 10 years ago about what happens chemically during sex. There's this amazing bonding thing that happens in sex. It's not, it's even more intense than what happens in infancy during breastfeeding. Those of you who are young moms, you, talk, uh, you know the importance of bonding with a child. The importance of skin-on-skin contact with that infant so that the baby can bond with the mother. You know about that, don't you? And how that breastfeeding even intensifies it. That with that affectionate touch, with that physical connection, we now know that that bonding happens because with that touch, with that connection, there is a chemical released in the brain called oxytocin which bonds us emotionally with the other. We know that infants who are deprived of touch as they grow up have a very difficult time bonding. They don't know how to bond. What happens if you bond with somebody and then it gets torn apart? And then you bond maybe with somebody else and then it gets torn apart. Can you see how painful that is? Can you see what that produces over time? This callousness, this fear, this retreat. God's vision for sex, the one that's communicated to us in the Bible, is that... um, He gives to us, God created us in his image, and he himself is relational. We have this crazy God, this Christian God, who is actually three in one, but the three are so close that they're, yes, they're distinct, but oh, they're the same. And they're different, but they're not. And they know each other completely. It's that kind of perfect intimacy within the Godhead. We're created in his image. He made us for, for relationship with him. He made us to enjoy that same kind of relationship with each other. And never more perfectly than in that 
marriage relationship, that deep knowing, that caring. And there is a physical expression of it in the sacredness of sex. And even during that act, um, he's designed us in such a way that we that our souls bond. Now, what happens when that is so cheapened that yada just becomes yada 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 yada? Huh? Eh, yada 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 yada. It's just sex. Please, don't get all uptight about it. It's just sex. Yada, 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 yada. I was really disappointed uh, that marriage uh, did not solve my porn problem. It's natural. Um, It was inevitable that I would see porn as a kid. Nobody told me that, by the way. Uh, in today's culture, it's absolutely inevitable. Every kid sees porn. It was inevitable that I would like porn. Every boy likes porn because porn depicts something that we're wired by God to want. I also had a very, very, very deep loneliness. And, um, you know, the treacherous thing about imaginary sex about porn, you know, the, the treacherous thing about porn is that, you know, it, it, it makes, makes it possible for me to create a virtual connection with an imaginary person. And there is this flood of feeling with sexual release. There is this pulse of oxytocin. It's a false intimacy where I'm not really connecting, but for a moment it feels like I am. But when the moment passes, I'm still alone, except now a little lonelier and a little less able to form an actual relationship with a real person. Long-term porn use creates an intimacy disorder. And by the way, porn, I'm well aware, is no longer a guy problem. Used to be the assumption was... Porn is a guy problem, uh, or, or you know, obsessive sexual behavior is a guy problem, not a girl problem. That is not the case, and I know it. The fastest growing demographic in the sexually addicted population is female. If you're a girl and you're not in that segment of the population, count yourself lucky. Um. But also, please understand that you have your vulnerabilities. And no one sin is any worse than any other. The fact that you're not currently sinning sexually in a way that we define sin does not mean that you're morally superior to anybody else. One of the reasons that my marriage survived is that I'm fortunate enough to be married to a woman who understands that we are sinners in equal need of grace. You know, during college, I had decided, you know, I tortured my, my conscience as a kid around my porn use. I had hidden all my sexual interest. Nobody could see it because it certainly would not bring uh, 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 glory to the name of Jesus. 
Um, it would harm my reputation, so I hid it. Nobody suspected. I thought marriage would solve it. Um, in college, I just decided that I was being a prude. This was one vestige of my oppressive, you know, tied-up puritanical upbringing that I just needed to let go. It was just sex. It was yada, 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 lighten up. And I decided that I would just regard it as practice for marriage. Not realizing that I was poisoning my marriage. Not realizing that I was setting up expectations for marriage. For the sexual part of marriage. That no living person could meet. Um, and it was sometime after I married that I graduated from softcore porn to hardcore porn. It got deeper and deeper. That eventually led to prostitution and all kinds of very dark places. I only lasted five years in the ministry, never was caught. But after five years in the ministry, on the day I turned 30, I woke up knowing, this, I can't keep this up. I'm either going to have to quit the ministry or quit this behavior. And at that point, there was only one I could quit. I had lost my sexual freedom. Um, and if you've ever been in that place, you know what a dark and hopeless place that is. What made it worse for me was that I could control my sexual behavior for short periods of time. I could white-knuckle it on my own. I, I certainly couldn't tell anybody. That would be fatal. Even after I left the ministry, I still came to church every Sunday. I was still active in church. This was the place I could breathe. I still loved God. I hated my own hypocrisy. I wanted to get out of this trap. And then the churches I was a part of, to even admit that sexual sin was, holy smokes, I was going to be given the left foot of fellowship. I was going to be shown the door. It wasn't safe for me to tell anybody. I knew that. Um, so, you know, I would make these fresh resolutions, usually after I'd crossed another line. Something I said I would never do, I would do that. And then that would sober me up and I would say, okay, that's it. Make a fresh set of resolutions. And I could hold on for a while, but eventually I'd just get tired. And in a moment of weakness, the planets would align and boom, I was back in it again. And the out of control behavior and with it, this condemning voice that said, oh, you're really a slime. You could stop. Look, look how long you didn't do it. Um. I'm so grateful that God orchestrated in my life in such a way that 13 years ago, Allie and I found our way into a much healthier spiritual environment, one like this one, where we understand what the gospel's about. Where you don't have to be an ex-sinner, you can be a sinner. A place where there's an expectation that church is a place where, in the words of James chapter 5, verse 16, we get together in order to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another, that we may be healed. The assumption of that verse is that every time we get together, everybody has something to confess. 
If today you have nothing to confess, I don't care whether it's sexual. If you have nothing to confess, you are in a very dangerous place. You are blind to your own brokenness. You don't see your need. You actually believe you're better than other people. You are in grave danger of crucifying again the Son of God if you have nothing today to confess. No, you got something. And you're also called upon as a member of this church to be somebody safe enough That you can be a confessor. That somebody can confess to you. Somebody can confide in you their struggle. And you can hold it. And you can carry it with them. And you can fight with them. And you can help them see the cross. And you can... (laughs) I mean, that's that's the whole enchilada right there. This is a collaborative thing. We follow Jesus together. We are all colossal failures as solo disciples for the very simple reason that Jesus doesn't have any solo disciples. We can only follow him together. And when we're alone, we all can get very, very, very deep in the weeds. Now, I'm grateful that um, two things happen. I'm going to close you know, Paul kind of drops the hammer on the church here in Corinth. He draws a line. He says, no, 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 none of this yada, 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 yada. This is yada. Without shaming them, he says, no, you have to flee from sexual immorality. We don't go there. We don't do casual sex here. That's a violation of what God made us for. It, You are an embodied spirit, he says. And your body is important. The body is so important, he says in this chapter, in this section we just read, the body is so important that God made it a point to raise Jesus bodily. The body is so important that he calls us the body of Christ. Your body is the temple of God who lives within you. And what you're doing physically affects you spiritually. Stop and think for a minute. Does your Physical health affect your spiritual health? Of course it does. Can you be sinning with your body and not experience a spiritual conf- uh, 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 consequence? No, you cannot. And, and that consequence will not be limited to you. It will be felt by anyone who's in relationship with you. For years, my wife did not know what was poisoning our relationship. She saw me drifting away emotionally. She couldn't explain it. The truth is, I was forming attachments with all kinds of people, real and imagined, every day outside our marriage. Of course I couldn't connect with her. She thought it was because she was defective in some way. That seemed like a good explanation to me. And I'm ashamed to say that I went with it. Now, my wife saved my life. On the day she finally caught me, and I've told the story here, on the day she finally caught me downloading porn early in the morning back in my office, the day she caught me with the other woman, 
And by the way, I had actually told myself that since I never wanted to have an affair, I never wanted to know a name, I never wanted an emotional connection, that somehow I wasn't connecting and I wasn't being unfaithful to my wife. She saw me with the other woman. She drew a line. No, I'm not going to do that. We're not going here. Four out of every five guys, I know this about guys anyway, four out of every five guys who seek help for compulsive sexual behavior do so only after receiving an ultimatum from a wife or a girlfriend. Did I want her to draw the line at the time? No. But I was dying. I was alone and she was alone and we were in pain and I didn't know how to connect and I didn't know how to stop. Somebody had to draw a line and she did. She was angry, but she did not reject me completely. She didn't demonize me. She owned her own stuff. And then God put me... God put me with a group of people who thankfully were not Christians. Hallelujah. God put me with some people in 12-step recovery. I didn't know Christians. I didn't know any Christians healthy enough to deal with this. I went to a 12-step group for sex addicts. And you know what they did? They drew a line. That had nothing to do with a God out there who wanted to spoil my fun. It was not moralistic. It wasn't any of that stuff. It wasn't puritanical. They just said, this is killing you. you got to stop. They gave me a sobriety definition that was as tough as any, any church had ever given me. No sex with self or partners other than the spouse. And they said, by the way, you can't do that by yourself. You're going to have to surrender to a power greater... Higher than greater than yourself. You're going to have to learn to live in honesty. You're going to have to go back, clear away the wreckage of your past, become willing to make amends. But here's what you're going to get. If you'll do this, you'll get your freedom back. It will actually become possible for you to come out of the shadows as your real self and form real relationships with real people. And there's even a chance you might form a real relationship with your wife. Can't promise it. She might be done. Not every marriage survives what you've done. It's possible. I learned the gospel through my brokenness. I'm so grateful for my brokenness. I'm so grateful to be a recovering sex addict. I really am. I never would have found the gospel otherwise. Never would have really felt forgiveness. I, I, I'm like Paul. Paul says, you know, I'm a fool for Christ. Hey, I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm going to glory in my weakness because the bigger my sin, the bigger, my, the, bigger the cross, the bigger my salvation. The more, the more beautiful God is, the greater my joy. The more wonderful it is. Hey, let me be at the head of the line as a sinner. Forget my reputation. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have real relationship. I'm so grateful my marriage survived. It wasn't easy. It took time. It was several years before I could make hooker jokes. 
But today, she makes some pretty good hooker jokes. The scar is still there, but it doesn't hurt to touch it. And it's a beautiful reminder of where we were and where we've come. And I've also found that just a willingness to open that door and talk with other people makes me safe enough for them, many of them, to tell me things they've never been able to tell anybody else. I want to close with this. After talking with thousands and thousands and thousands of people, literally, I've come to the conclusion that nobody gets into adulthood unscathed. Most people aren't sex addicts, not in the way I am. But I've never met a guy who doesn't know the power of sex. I've never met a person who hasn't been wounded sexually or done something sexually that they don't regret. There's no shame in that. That's life in a broken world. If today your biggest fight is sexual, what I hope you know is that this is not a place where you have to hide it. You don't have to come up here and talk about it. You don't have to tell everybody. But my experience tells me that you're not really going to make progress and you're not going to get free until you tell somebody. Find a safe person. Be a safe person. And let's make... Let's make sure that this place is a place where where sex can become what it was meant to be. I remember my sponsor in the 12-step thing, one of the things he said to me early. He said, Larkin, you have never made love to your wife in your life. I was insulted. I had three kids. Oh, he said, no, I'm not talking about sex. Anybody can have sex. Your dog can have sex. But you've confused lust with love. You don't know what it's like to make love. Lust is about taking. Love is about giving. Lust doesn't really see a person. It's true. All those Girls who I paid for sex. I never thought to even imagine what drove them, first of all, to that line of work. Why? How did they get there? And where did they want to go? Is this what they wanted to do with their life? Did they have a, girl, did they have a boyfriend? Were they married? Did they want to be married? Did they have kids? What did they envision for their future? What was it like at home? Were they lonely at night? I never thought about it because she wasn't a person. She was a body. And at my sickest, no female was a person. My wife was not a person, and she knew it. I was using her, and she knew it. It's very impersonal lust. Love. No. No, love is personal. Love sees you and just you. Not you in a cast of thousands. 
Love gives, lust takes. Let's, let's make this a place where we can love. Where marriages can grow in love. Where single people can move toward love. Where we don't cheapen it. Where we don't use, we don't misuse grace. And say, you know, it's just sex. It's yada, 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 yada. No. Yada. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you know our frame, that you remember that we're dust. Thank thank you for the beauty of your creation, the way you've made us in your image, the way you've designed us to actually know and enjoy intimacy. You've made us for relationship. And yet in a world that's gone so sideways, in which all of us have been victims and most of us have been perpetrators, You haven't given up on us. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for coming into our dark lives with a determination and a promise that you'll make all things new. Thank you that healing is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is only coming and surrendering and opening. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room today. I pray for those who have just been holding on as I'm talking. Just trying to hang on to live through the sermon because it's triggering all kinds of pain. I pray that you'd bring comfort. For those who are drowning in shame, old tapes telling them what an awful person they are, that they're beyond redemption, that they've spoiled it. Oh God, would you please... Speak hope and healing. Pray, Lord, that you would allow us to hear your gentle call, to respond to it. Help us to trust Christ, to trust the body of Christ this morning.